One of the important doctrines recovered during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was the priesthood of all believers. Let let me explain. Through the centuries, the church had established an elaborate system of distinction between official ministers, we call them clergy or or priests, and the people, you know, the, the laity. As a result, the priests wielded incredible power over the people. For example, the priests and, and, and they alone could approach God on behalf of their flocks. The, the laity, to find forgiveness and absolution, had to go through the priests in a sacrament called penance. The priests and, and they alone had copies of the Bible fact is, they alone could read it. You see, copies of the Bible were in Latin. They were certainly not in the language of the people. And even if you did have a copy and could perchance read Latin, it didn't matter. You had no ability to understand it because the church alone had the authority to interpret the Scripture for you. This separation was exacerbated by the fact that the the mass church services were conducted in Latin, which again, most people could not understand. The truth is the people were held hostage by the church. (laughs) That is until the Reformation. You see, Johann Gutenberg's invention called the printing press allowed for mass production of the Bible. It was quickly translated into the language of the people and then disseminated. And then Martin Luther and other reformers began to teach that that people could read and actually interpret the Bible for themselves. This is amazing. One verse among others that they could read was 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. No mediator between God and people except Jesus. People, as their own believer priests, could approach God on their own and find forgiveness. It is very difficult to grasp the spiritual freedom that that people suddenly felt. Most of us have have always known it. For them, this was earth-shattering. You have to understand that it changed the church forever. But remnants of that clergy-laity distinction exist to this day. What, What do I mean? In far too many churches, the paid clergy do the work of ministry they're expected to. After all, that's, that's what we pay them for. Well, well the people, well, they, they live their lives, occasionally show up on Sundays, sing a few songs, stand up, sit down, hear a nice homily, recite perhaps a creed or two, and do nothing. John Stott says, If the 16th century recovered the priesthood of all believers, perhaps the 20th, 21st century will recover the ministry of all believers. 
And I want to suggest to you this morning that if 1 Peter chapter 2 helped recover the priesthood of the believer, then our passage today will help recover the ministry of believers. I will go so far as to say, listen to me, we'll go so far to say that this is one of the most important passages that we will ever cover as a church, ever. And I believe that it is coming at an extremely important time for us. You see, I happen to believe that we have the people here necessary to reach our community, Boone, Watauga County, the surrounding counties, with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see people discipled in their faith. Here's the question, will we do it? I want to call us to be the church today, which means We must all be involved in the work of ministry. If we just leave it to the paid staff, to the six pastors who collect the paycheck, the very capable staff that we have, we will get some work done. But if we take a biblical approach to ministry and all of us seek to know how God has gifted us and how we can serve this body and serve this community. Listen, I believe that we can turn our world upside down. Question is, will we do it? Questions for you. How are you using your gifts to serve the body of Christ through this local church called Alliance Bible Fellowship? I want you to prayerfully consider how you might increase your commitment so that we can mature each other together and reach this community for Jesus. Just saw, I don't know how it escaped my notice, I mean it's only 2012, but Pastor Scott, our youth pastor showed me the the, um, uh, census results We're at the 50,000 people in Watauga County. Over half have no relationship with Jesus Christ. We are studying together the book of Ephesians. Paul spent the first three chapters teaching us about our great salvation, reminding us of what God has done for us in Christ. We know that he has transitioned in chapter 4. Therefore, in light of all that God has done, I want to call you to work in a manner worthy or equal to your calling. Your calling to this great salvation. Your calling into this body of Christ. I, I, I need, he started with, I want you to walk in humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and, and, and love. Maintaining the unity that God bought with the precious blood of his son. Last week, he went further to say, but I want you to understand this is not a unity at any cost. This unity comes, is maintained because of our common faith. In fact, Paul went on to list seven affirmations, almost like a creed, upon which our unity is built Our unity is built on truth. We agree on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And then having listed those seven affirmations, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of all, Paul keys on that word one, keys on our unity to talk about how each one is distinctly gifted 
There is diversity that contributes to our unity. Look at it with me, our text, Ephesians 4, verses 7 and following say this, but to each one, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some, Jesus gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. When I began my study this week on this text, I I knew there were some controversies in the passage. I just didn't know how much. I fully expected that my conservative, biblical, scholarly scholarly commentaries would fix the controversies. They didn't. So I will do my best job to teach the text, highlighting some of the disagreements. But, But in the end, wherever we fall on some of these difficult verses, the overall teaching of the verse remains. Here it is. Here's what I want you to take this morning. We must together do the work of ministry if it is to be done. Enough of fandom. Enough of spectator Christianity. It's time to get in the game. I'll give you the outline of the text as we jump into it. Gifts given to all. Gifted uh, people or leaders given to the church. And then what is the goal of all that gifting? A couple of weeks ago, I suggested verse 1 of chapter 4 is the transitional and introductory statement for the rest of the book, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He goes on to describe that worthy walk. The rest of chapter 4, he's going to talk about a walk of unity in verses 2 to 16, and then a walk of purity, 17 to 32. So right now, I, I, I tell you that to remind you, we're in the middle of talking about a walk of unity. Unity still the theme. Verse 3, preserve the unity of the Spirit. Verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith. Verse 16 continues this idea of unity, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. So God achieved this unity through the work of His Son as He reconciled us to Himself and reconciled us to one another. This unity must be preserved through these Christian graces that we talked about. Unity is built on the foundation of truth. And this unity now, he says, is attained still further in fullness as we serve one another and build up the body of Christ. Look at verse 7 with me again. But to each one, that's his way of saying everybody, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that's a bit interesting. See, what we're going to find what that means is that Paul is saying that Christ has distributed gifts to his people for the purpose of building each other up. Spiritual gifts, you got some, one or some. But 1 Corinthians 12 says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing gifts to each one individually just as 
He, the Spirit, wills. Romans 12, that we quoted, that other gift list, seems to indicate God is the one who gives gifts to believers. So which one is it? Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Or is it the Spirit who gives gifts? Yes. All three are involved in giving spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body. uh, Building up the body, Ephesians 4, for the common good, 1 Corinthians 12, for serving one another, Romans 12. Spiritual gifts are given to have an other's focus. Some of you show up on Sunday morning to get what you get. Some of you are involved in church to get what you get. Some of you demonstrate that by flitting from church to church to get what you get. Some of you need to understand that the church is a place for you to give. Please understand the gifts are so important. Our triune God is in the process of distributing them for the purpose of building each other up toward mature godly unity. God has gifted you to build up. How are How are you using your gifts? Because, point one, gifts have been given to all. But to each one of us, grace was given. And that gift lists in chapter Romans 12 that we read, Paul said, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Then he goes on to give the the, the gift list. See, the the word for grace is the word charis. And the word for spiritual gifts is actually a play on, on that particular word. Some even say that Paul made up a new word in 1 Corinthians 12, charisma, charisma, grace gifts. Here's the point. We have received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, just as the Spirit gives gifts to each one as He wills, Paul here says Christ sovereignly, not randomly, not haphazardly. He sovereignly gives grace according to the measure of His will. He decided what gifts you got, in fact, how much of them you got. All agree that Paul is talking about, here in Ephesians 4, he's talking about grace gifts, charisma. But that's where the agreement ends and the difficulties in the passage begins three in particular. Verse 8, therefore it says, and, and Paul begins quoting an Old Testament passage, namely Psalm 68. Now, Psalm 68 is a psalm of David. It's a cry to God, asking God to show himself mighty again. Psalm starts with a familiar verse, let, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. You know that one. Just like you showed yourself mighty in the Exodus, he goes on to say, delivering your people demonstrating power over all those bad guys, all the enemies. God, you brought your people to Sinai. The, the, the mountain quaked, kings scattered. But then, God, you decided to go from Mount Sinai and to ascend to, to your holy mountain, Zion, Jerusalem. And you decided to ascend this victorious king. And verse 18 describes that event saying, you, God, have ascended on high. You have, led captive, um, you have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may dwell there. So God, 
Here's the picture. It's a, it's a picture of what happened in Old Testament time. God in triumphal procession, it was like a parade, led his enemies in ascending Mount Zion. And he received, notice, received gifts from men. Well, Paul quotes this passage, applies it to Christ, and his victorious triumphal ascension after the cross and resurrection to heaven. Therefore it, Psalm 68 says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's a pro- Two areas of disagreement here. First, who are the captives Jesus led when he ascended to heaven? Who are the captives Jesus led when he ascended to heaven? I will spare you. Most agree, there was some agreement here, that the captives were his enemies, those to whom Paul refers throughout this book as rulers and authorities and dominions and powers, those demonic forces that withstood him. He conquered them at the cross, and then when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his own right hand, far above all his enemies. He put all things in subjection under his feet to include his enemies. That Colossians 2, a, 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 a book that was written about the same time, speaks of this, and it says this. When he had disarmed, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities in the context is through the cross, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through, and it probably should be it, through the cross. I want to remind you that the theme of Ephesians is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. And those things in heaven are represented by those spiritual, demonic, dark forces. Jesus reigns supreme. You need to remember to whom Paul is writing. He's writing to the Ephesian believers. Ephesus was the home of those dark magic arts, the occult. He's telling the Ephesian believers, Christ has won. He's triumphed. Yeah, there's still battles to be fought. That's why he's going to tell them and us in chapter 6 to put on our spiritual armor. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul says, when Christ ascended like a conquering king, he led a host of captives, conquered enemies in procession behind him. They were in chains. Yeah, I know they're still causing problems and stuff like that, but they are a defeated foe. And Jesus ascended like God ascended in Psalm 68. And he gave gifts to men. That's that first problem. Who are the captives? I told you what I think it is. Second problem. Psalm 68 says God received gifts. Paul says Jesus gave gifts. So which one is it? And the answer is yes. You see, some say that Paul intentionally changed the Old Testament passage to fit his purposes. I outright reject that. Some say Paul used a variant reading of the Old Testament, which says that God gave gifts. Possible. I personally don't think so. Here's what I think. The Hebrew word in Psalm 68 can mean give or receive. It depends on the context. I think it means both. You see, here's what would happen. Remember, this was a This was an image. This was a picture. A conquering king would receive the bounty, the booty, 
which he would in turn give to his army as gifts. Paul plays on that idea. Christ is the conquering hero. He's leading the forces of evil that he has conquered, and he's received the spiritual booty. Say, I don't like that. He, I mean, he, 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 what did he get from the devil that I want? Yeah, don't mess with the picture. It's just a picture. He's received the booty, and he has in turn distributed spiritual bounty. He's given gifts to his people. That's us. Then Paul jumps into a parenthetical statement in verses 9 and 10 just because we're not confused enough. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower, earth, lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Remember, that's the theme of the, of the book. He's, he's filling everything. It's all about him. That's, that's why he ascended. But, but, but here, very clearly, Paul says Jesus descended first, then he ascended. And he tells us that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. What, what does that mean? That's, that's, the third, that's the third problem. There, there are two basic interpretations. There are others. Again, I'll spare you. Two basic interpretations. The early church fathers took this verse and coupled it connected it with 1 Peter chapter 3. This is confusing. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which, in the Spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were once disobedient. Here's what the early church fathers taught. They taught that during the three days that Jesus was dead, before the bodily resurrection three days later, during those three days, Jesus in the Spirit went to hell where he preached to those in hell, those in prison. So they said, Paul is saying that Jesus descended to the lower parts of the earth, that is, Jesus went to hell, which is why, for example, the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell, and you may remember when I read that last week, I said he descended not into hell. We also, in that First Peter chapter 3 passage, have the whole discussion of who are those in prison? Who's that? Is he going down there saying, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, I told you so? I mean, what, what is that about? We, I'm not going to even get into that. Many problems with that first interpretation. Not going to go into all of it, but, but, but almost everyone today agrees that Paul was not talking about Jesus descending into hell. The words, the lower parts of the earth, simply refer to the earth being lower than the heavens. Remember, heavens and earth. That's what, this is a theme in the book. Jesus descended from heaven to that which was lower. In fact, it could be translated just to the lower earth. So most likely, Paul is simply referring to, Je to, to Jesus' incarnation. Jesus left heaven, descended to earth, took on the form of a man. Philippians 2, written about this time, makes that very, very clear. So what, so what we have so far is this. Jesus came to earth. He won the victory through the cross. In his return to heaven, he led captives in triumphal procession, namely those forces of evil arrayed against him. He's conquered them. 
They're now beneath his feet. He received gifts of grace through his victory, which now in turn he has given to his people. But not only did he give gifts, point two, he also gave gifted leaders or gifted people to the church. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. So he's gifted everyone, every one of us. We've been spiritually gifted to serve, but to the church, he gave these four or five leaders to fill certain roles or offices to help the people use their gifts. So let's look briefly at these four or five offices that he talks about here. Obviously, he doesn't talk about all of them, because every office in the church, because he doesn't even mention elders um, and and deacons. So we're going to primarily confine ourselves to these. Now, I say four or five because, surprise, surprise, there is a difference of opinion about about these and about the number. Paul has already used the first two of these, apostles and prophets, in chapters 2 and 3 to talk about how the apostles and prophets received the mystery of the gospel, and it was upon this truth that the church was built. Remember, the apostles and prophets were the foundation with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. So, get that. In two previous chapters, we identified the apostles and prophets as those, it's very important, limited to New Testament times that God used to lay the foundation of the church, primarily through their teaching ministry. The big question then is this. When we get to chapter 4, are these apostles and prophets also only those in New Testament times, or... Do those offices continue today through the spiritual gifts of apostleship and prophecy that Paul talks about in another gift list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Anybody want to take over? Can I tell you that I have read the arguments both ways, read and read and read on this particular verse. I have read and studied, and I am not personally persuaded one way or the other. Flip a coin. I don't care. So let's just right now define the offices and we'll we'll go from there and I'll, I'll, I'll try and weave in the possibilities. First, apostles. As most of you know, the word apostle, apostolos, speaks of one sent with an official message. Certainly, if this refers to the foundation of the church, then Paul was speaking of the 12, plus Paul included himself. But we also know that that word apostolos, apostle, was used in the New Testament to speak of those who went out as what we would call today missionaries, spreading the gospel. That's, that's the official message that they had. They're emissaries of Christ. And as they go preaching the gospel, they go with official authority over the churches they planted. So, so, so either way, initial or, or present-day missionaries, what you have is those who proclaimed the gospel, planted churches, and exercised authority. That's an apostle. Second, prophets. Prophets in New Testament times carried, get this, a revelatory, authoritative, and sometimes predictive message of God. 
revelatory, authoritative, predictive message from God. They spoke God's revelation, certainly prior to the completion of the New Testament. Big question then is, do prophets and prophecy exist today? Paul seems to allow for that. Those today who speak prophetically God's truth to a specific person or to a specific church, but not with the same authority as New Testament prophets who were writing the Scripture. Not with the same authority, for example, as Old Testament prophets who could say, thus says the Lord. Prophecies today, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, are to be weighed. That is, they are to be weighed against New Testament truth. In other words, if a prophet speaks today, he or she does not necessarily speak without error. They can be wrong. They can say, Jesus is coming back October 22nd and be wrong. Third person is the evangelist. This word is used only three times in the New Testament. First, in referring to Philip, one of the original seven, uh, seven deacons in Acts chapter 6. Luke later refers to him as an evangelist. The second time is here, and the, la- the last time is when he writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, and tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. What is it? Well, the word is obviously tied to the word evangelize, which is really the, the word for good news or, or, or gospel. It simply means to, to be an evangelist is to share the gospel. Most agree that evangelist is the one with a gifted ability from God, either through personal evangelism or th- perhaps through preaching the gospel to be able to, to, to share effectively the gospel. But it also includes, the evangelist also has the ability to train others to evangelize, okay? It isn't just someone who's really good at winning people to Christ. It's someone who can train others to do it as well. Let me give you a perfect illustration that most of us are very, very familiar with, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association or Samaritan's Purse, where Franklin Graham serves uh, as an evangelist. Billy, Franklin, pick, take your pick. doesn't matter. We, we would all agree, I think, that they are evangelists, They are good evangelists, and they preach the gospel. But you do understand when they got ready to go in and do those big campaigns, when they they, they got ready to do that, they they would send in a host of people ahead of time and train and, and prepare and equip and empower people to share the gospel so that when tens of thousands of people fill the stadiums and Billy or Franklin preached, they were ready to share the gospel and see them come to faith in Christ. That is an evangelist. Fourth person, gifted person, is the pastor. The pastor. As fond as the church is today of that title, I find find it very interesting that that word is only used in an official capacity one place in the New Testament right here. Isn't that interesting? Right here. The word literally is the word shepherd. 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 Let me share a couple of things about a pastor. First, a shepherd or a pastor is to lead and feed and protect the sheep. I'm going to talk about that more next week. Secondly, the word pastor. Now, some of you are going, wait, uh, the word shepherd is used all over. That's right. But in in terms of this uh, official capacity as pastor, one time. The word pastor is used interchangeably with some other important words in the New Testament, namely 
the words elder, overseer, or, or, or bishop. Sometimes, some of your translations have it bishop. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we read the words of Paul. He called the Ephesian elders to come see him, and he, and he says to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's the word bishop, to shepherd, that's the verb form of the word pastor, shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now, I won't belabor the point, but the fact is, from a biblical perspective, elders, our pastors, our bishops, our overseers. Typically today, we reserve the word pastor for the paid elders in the church. And so, for example, we have six pastors at Alliance Bible Fellowship. What that means is we have six paid elders at Alliance. We get paid for doing it. But the truth is we have 18 elders who are pastors, who are overseers, who are bishops at Alliance. Six of us just happen to be paid for it. But our responsibilities are the same, to feed, lead, and protect the flock. Last, leader is the teacher. Many rightly point out that pastors and teachers in this list are connected grammatically. That's why some insist on only four here. Some say five. Some of you have heard the term a pastor-teacher that comes from this verse. Most agree that, 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 that while these are two different offices, two different people, Paul intentionally connects them closely because pastors and teachers teach. You see, shepherds feed the flock with the Word of God, and teachers teach the Word of God. The close connection probably looks something like this. All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. So, what we have is this. Here's where we are to this point. We are unified because of the cross of Christ, reconciled to God and to one another. We're to make every effort to preserve our unity through those Christian graces of humility, gentleness, etc., our unity is built on the foundation of truth, one triune God through whom we have one body, one faith, one baptism, one hope. Further, to preserve and build on that unity that we already have, Christ has gifted every person to serve in the body of Christ. To build... Preserve and build that unity he has gifted every person in the body of Christ. I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons that we have been so good at dividing and having churches on every street corner is because the people have left the ministry to the pastors who don't know everything and they can't do everything but that if we would together serve, unity would follow. When Jesus ascended victoriously back to heaven, leading a triumphal procession, his conquered enemies, he received and gave gifts to his people. Each one has received a spiritual gift which is for the common, for the common good. 
Christ has also given gifted leaders to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, or some number thereof. Why? Why has he given gifted leaders to the church? Here's the problem. To establish a separation between the ministers and the people. To identify a select few people through whom God expects all the work to be done. Those who lead and those who do, while everyone else follows and watches, like sitting in a stadium as a bunch of fans. Is that it? No. Verses 12 and 13, our last point. The goal of the gifts and gifted people for the equipping of the saints for the works or the work of service. Stop there because that's as far as we'll get. It is the responsibility of gifted leaders given to the church, whether we include all or some of them, does not matter. It is the responsibility of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for works of service. Their primary responsibility is not to do the work of ministry, but to equip, train, teach, empower, and facilitate the work of ministry to be done. It is not their job to do the ministry alone, but to lead in the work of ministry as we all do it together. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if, if, that if we sit and wait for six people to, to reach Watauga County with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to take a while. But if we take a thousand people who call themselves Alliance Bible Fellowship, well, you do the math. All that, by the way, presupposes that we are involved in a body of believers called the church, where we can be involved and serve one another. Some people say, I don't need the church. Wrong. Other people come just to get. Again, flit from church to church. Wrong. One author said it this way, the Christian community is essential for growth for, uh, to maturity because Christ has sovereignly endowed every individual with special abilities to minister to all the other members. We need each other. I need what you have. You need what I have. I don't have what you have. You need to give it to me. I'm going to stop there. We'll take the rest of the text next week. It is time for the church of Jesus Christ to recover the ministry of the saints. Here's my question. What are you doing to serve this body of Christ? How are you using your gifts to serve, to do the work of ministry? It might very well be that we leaders have just done the work, collected paychecks, and not called, trained, empowered, and released you for ministry, and for that I am dreadfully sorry. But it is time, it is time for the church to be the church. In fact, maybe you're here this morning and you would say, as some have said, I'm really having trouble connecting an alliance. Been coming, not sure how I fit in. Can I tell you that the best way to get connected here, or frankly in any church, is to serve and not wait to be served? The truth is, the truth is, many in the church of Jesus Christ are only involved for what they can get out of it 
But if we would all give, it's funny how this works, we would all receive. If your experience with Alliance Bible Fellowship is only this hour on Sunday mornings, you are missing much of what the church of Jesus Christ is doing. There is much going on here. In fact, many of you may not be aware of all that God is doing, so let me share with you in picture form some of the ministries of Alliance, some places that you can get involved. I'm just going to walk you through a few slides. Let's go to the next one. That's you about a month ago. Showed that to the first service because first service we have about that many people and they're kind of wondering why we have that early service because if that many more people came, we'd have no place to put them. Next slide. Some of you are brave enough to, to, to make your way into the commons. I, however, stay in here. Next slide. Look at that. Next. <laughs> Wednesday night. You know, Wednesday night, we have a program called Awana, which is three years old through fifth grade, and that on any given Wednesday night, we have 130 to 150 kids, not counting the 50 middle schoolers that are up there. We, we kind of keep them hidden. Um, <laughs> three years old to, to fifth grade, 150, that takes workers. Does this look fun? It is. When I was in college, I did three-year-old Awana, couldn't get enough of it. Next slide. That's the Iwana Grand Prix that took place in November. Everyone pretty excited. In fact, next slide, you can see them rooting on their... How can, how can you not be involved in that? Next slide. Some of you think Awali Oasis is our early childhood, early childhood area. And some of you think that it's just a nursery. Does that look like a nursery to you? We have the opportunity to sit these kids down and to begin pouring into them the very basic truths of the Christian faith. Next slide. Kid Zone. Kid Zone takes place upstairs uh, in, a, in a room where we'll have 80 plus kids come and another 20 workers. We'll cram over 100 people. Is my fire chief here this morning? Um, we will cram 100. Sorry, we have two exits. Uh, 100 people in this room and they are learning what it means to serve Christ. Look at, those, look at those ones in the front. Look like kids to me. Next slide. Kids, not only do they get the big group, they get in a little group where adults have the opportunity to pour the same truths that you're pouring into them as parents, pour the same truths into them for a few minutes on Sunday morning. Next. Vacation Bible School took place last um, summer. This is one um, among many slides that, we could, uh, that I could have showed you, but we had hundreds of kids here. Next. That's a youth retreat just last fall. That looks like a lot of kids to me. That takes a lot of workers. Next. That's the youth Christmas party just a few weeks ago. Uh, excuse me, that's the high school. That's only high school. Just a few weeks ago. Next slide is the middle school youth party in their dungeon where we keep them um, <laughs> that took place just a few weeks ago. They need, they need adults to love them. Come alongside and pour truth into them and care for them. Next, youth refugee camp that took place last summer. I'm not even going to try and explain that. Talk to one of these kids and find out what they did. Next slide. There's another, I just threw that one in there because two of those happen to be pretty good-looking little girls. 
Next slide. <laughs> a few weeks ago. This is just a few weeks ago. Mar- we began a women's Bible study on Thursday morning, began, began again. Marcy comes up. She's breathless. Uh, she, she's out of breath. She comes up to me. She says, Scott, we have 75 women down in the commons. Will you come down? I said, Sure. And so I came down, and I walk in, and she was right. There were 75 women, I think 40 children being cared for. What do you do when you have 75 women in one room? You pray. (laughs) And then I got out of there very, very quickly. Next slide. This was last Wednesday. This is about four or five days ago. Some of you can look at each other and see you in the picture. These are college girls sitting in my office. I am not there. Uh, didn't even take the picture. Uh, in my office, studying God's Word together. Next slide. This is one of the many baptisms, one of the many baptisms that we experienced last week. I mean, last year as a church body. Do, do, do you know that, every, you can go to the next slide. I think that was it. Do you know that every one of those ministries takes gifted people to be involved? And that's not even all of them. We don't have pictures of everything that goes on here. Life groups, those are small groups. You're going to be hearing more about those in the weeks to come. Um, Men's Bible studies, Freedom Farm, Worship and Fine Arts Ministries, College Ministries, Wednesday evening meals. That doesn't just happen. Wednesday evening cleanup, Bible studies, work days, the list goes on and on. The truth is there are literally dozens of ways that you can be involved in Alliance. In fact, right now, ushers, right now, I'm going to ask the ushers to distribute a card that we have prepared for this morning for, for you to fill out. Right now, just don't stop. Just, just keep on coming. If you are here this morning and you are teenage and above, or I don't care if you're a kid who wants to serve, go right on ahead. We have a card here that lists most, we think most, of the ministries, opportunities that, that are happening here at our church. And I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to fill this card out. Worship team is coming. They're going to sing a song. You can sing along as well while you're filling out the card. This is an opportunity for you to fill out a card and say, this is a ministry I want to be involved in. Do not fill out this card and turn in and say, this is another way that I want to be served. Fill out the card and say, this is how I want to be involved. If you want time to pray about it, we'll give you 30 seconds. If you want time to take it home and to prayerfully consider it, we'll let you do it. But don't forget it at home, and it doesn't matter if you do, because we're going to have it again here next week. I want you to fill out the card. They're going to sing a song. Uh, then I'm going to, uh, to pray for our offering. And notice we haven't taken that offering yet. That's been intentional, because we're going to give you an opportunity to turn this card in. We're hoping to receive hundreds of cards. What that is going to mean is that it's going to take us a little while to get with you, so give us grace, be patient, we'll get with you, and it is our desire to equip you, train you, prepare you, and plug you into ministry. Can you imagine what a thousand people could do for the gospel of Jesus Christ as we serve one another and serve this community? Finally, last thing for me this morning, as you look at those various pictures, you saw several things. I know I've gone a long time this morning, but I had a lot to say. You saw several things. First, you saw lots of ministries going on. Second, you saw lots of people. In fact, third, you saw cramped space. And I told you that I would keep you informed as to our progress in the building campaign. Okay, I'm just going to say two or three sentences about this this morning. I am excited to tell you that since we began the next phase of our giving, since December 1st, we have received $196,000. That is very, very encouraging. 
And I remind you that that is toward a goal of a million dollars in 2012. So we have given a green light for our builders to, to do some more work. You may have noticed the bulldozer out front. That's not a kid's own prop. <laughs> Lord willing, this week they will begin working on grading and other preparation for the floor level of our new building. It is all very, very exciting. And I want to thank you for giving and encourage you to continue giving sacrificially. In fact, in the seat in front of you is that little green card, commitment card to growing for God's glory. If you have not yet filled one out, I want to encourage you to commit with the rest of us. I want to encourage you to do it today. I want to remind you that this building is simply a tool. If we continue to grow, especially in serving one another, every member ministry, recovering the ministry of all believers, I believe that we will grow numerically. We're going to need this building very soon. So I'm inviting you to participate with us. There is a place on that card. I need everybody to fill one out. If you haven't filled one out, I need you to fill it out. You say, but I don't, I'm not at a place where I can give. Yeah, there's a place where you can say, I don't know that I can give, but I commit to give as God enables me to give. And so I want to encourage you this morning um, to fill out one of those cards and, and drop that in. You, you probably won't have time. Well, yeah, you can because we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing. You've got two cards to fill out. Get them in the offering plate that we're going to take in just a minute. Let me pray. <coughs> Father, that is a lot of stuff. That's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of practical application. And it's because you expect us to be the church. So right now, you be the personnel director. You be the person having gifted people who places people in ministry. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.